Grace Intersect number one. Remember the 1996 song by Frank Sinatra called That's Life? Of course you do. Or maybe you don't if you weren't around then. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. Also the line, I've been up and down and over and out. And then, that's life, and I can't deny it. I'd sing it for you, but Frank would probably just roll over in his grave. It went to number five on the charts that year. People could really relate to it. Thanks to listening to Grace Intersect today, the very first ever Grace Intersect podcast. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. As we process together, your thoughts and or your questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the website graceintersect.com or by emailing to comments at graceintersect.com. Life is a journey. That's no surprise. Everybody has heard that one before. From one year to the next, we are all different because life. In fact, just one event or experience can be life-changing. You may think you're stuck in a rut, but chances are there are some important things about you that are very different now than they were 5, 10, 20 years ago. Going along with that thought, I think we all have a spiritual dimension to life. If that's true, then that means that we're also on a spiritual journey. And it is unique. It's just part of who we are. Well, this podcast is about the time when on the spiritual road we are traveling, we come to an important intersection. So put your name as the road on which you're traveling. My name is Jerry, so I'm on the Jerry Road. At some point, I come to an important intersection with a road called God's Grace. If you assume that grace is from God, you could just shorten the name of the road to Grace. For some on their road, when they come to the intersection with the road Grace, Almost immediately, it represents to them a place of inexpressible beauty, like scenes of snow-capped mountains or ocean sunsets or fields of flowers, the heart of a narrow canyon on a blue sky day, a shared joyful event, the ecstatic smile of your grandchild, yeah, the depth of love in the eyes of your spouse. It's a take-your-breath-away kind of place. For others... The intersection may represent scenery that is more like the squalid poverty of a third-world country or the stench of a drug-infested homeless camp in a first-world country or the incessant hatred of an extremist protest group, the fear or experience of a terrorist attack, the brutal rape and or murder of someone you know well, the foxhole of war, the pain of rejection when looking into the apathetic and unforgiving eyes of one you dearly love. This is a get-me-out-of-here kind of place. I don't know what it is for you, but for almost all of us, if not for all of us listening to this podcast, the spiritual journey we are on will include a time when our personal road, the road with your name on it, will come to an intersection where the cross of Jesus' crucifixion is seen. You may see it with relief, rescue, freedom, and life itself. Or you may see it with apathy, or fear, or even with hatred for what it represents to you. However, when seen clearly, this intersection will be a place where God's grace will meet us in the context of His love. These first two or three episodes of Grace Intersect 
will include a fair amount of my personal story. It may be helpful in knowing where I'm coming from and what my religious experiences have been, and it might make more sense of future episodes. Plus, I do have a strong feeling that you may identify with some, if not quite a bit, of my story. A little background might be helpful here, so let's start toward the beginning as I can best recall it for myself. You can probably relate to this kind of experience. As a young kid, do you ever remember meeting some of your extended family for the very first time? The aunts, uncles, cousins, for for example? That was always exciting for me. Sometimes I became good friends with a couple of them, and I really looked up to some. But did you ever have that awkward moment with a total stranger who ends up being your relative? At the time it happened to me, it was just plain weird. I was standing at an empty urinal in the empty school restroom. It was hot outside and a bit cooler in the restroom, so there was relief in more ways than one. Then an elderly man enters and uses the urinal right next to me. He looks quizzically at me for a few seconds and then he says in a heavy German accented English, something along the lines of, You're Moldenhauer. Yes, I said. And then he said, I could tell by the ears. Whose boy are you? Ray's, I said. And then he said, I'm your Uncle Luke. Turns out, he was my great uncle. Summertime in Eureka, South Dakota in 1960 was hot. We were part of a group of associated churches of the same denomination, which used the summer vacated, non-air-conditioned school for a conference. My dad was a pastor in Kansas City, Missouri. We made the 650-mile trip to attend the conference and to see extended family who would also be there. Much of both of my dad's and mom's families were from the North and South Dakota area, so that worked out pretty well. I was really looking forward to it except for the long preaching services. At 11 years of age, I had just begun exploring some of the more important questions of life. Every once in a while, the thoughts about does God really exist, came along. And if he does, what is he really like? And is it possible to know him? Sitting through long, hot meetings with a variety of passionate preachers couldn't help but bring up those questions again, but I really wasn't getting any kind of information that was helping. At some point, it seemed that there was probably a God, and for me, it became as simple as, Either something came from nothing or something has always existed. And during these meetings, it became obvious, of sorts, that I was headed for hell unless I asked God for forgiveness for all of my bad behavior, and I promised God only good behavior. So, I got baptized, and I sincerely believed that I could do those things. Ah, nothing like innocent and youthful sincerity. For a few days or so, it seemed like I could live up to my new commitments. Then it became quite apparent that, for all of the good intentions, I was pretty much the same person as before. Do you know the yo-yo life of behavior? Trying hard to live right and then giving up? That was now my frustrating life in the religious world. There was no shortage of reviewing of the do's and don'ts of living. The do's were important. But the don'ts, man, those were the biggies. 
Maybe it was because I could really be a pain sometimes, but the emphasis always seemed to be more on the do-nots. And it wasn't just behavior that was a problem. Quite often, behaving correctly on the outside covered up thoughts and attitudes on the inside that were anything but good. Deep in my soul, I really did want to do good. Really. I prayed about it, read the Bible, and hung out with family and friends where I knew there would be generally good behavior to kind of give me some support in that area. Seems like we all had similar sincere and frustrating life journeys of which guilt, shame, condemnation were all mixed with a strong desire for right and goodness and hope. But, as always, futility and exasperation were only one thought or one action away. Part of our church culture was a serious claim for truth-seeking. Here's how it worked. If the minutest, detailed truths of Scripture could be ascertained, then they could be and should be lived out. So, truth-seeking Bible study was highly admired. Some focused on truth of prophecy, others on truth of leadership, but most focused on truth of distinctive doctrines like Sabbath-keeping or kosher food observance, and abstaining from religious holidays that originated with pagan practices. If you've ever been in that kind of a system, even if the details are different, you know that judgment of oneself, and especially of others, was always at work. Of course, this was based on one's understanding of any particular truth. The King James Version of the Bible reigned supreme. Any other version was suspect or corrupt. How well a verse could be dissected and passionately presented was applauded, especially if it was convicting, which is just another word for guilt-inducing. While I thought this experience was unique to our church, I found out later I wouldn't be surprised if you could also relate because so many other churches have similar cultures. Growing up in a relatively closed church environment, that means we were not really associating a lot with other churches, there were a lot of good fun times with family and friends. In fact, our national church organization was so small that a biannual conference often included many family reunions. Even though friends that were made there could connect only two years because of being biannual, it was pretty easy to pick up where we left off in our friendships. What we had most in common was the church organization itself. Our church denomination started in the mid-1800s in the rural Midwest. The development of the belief system was rather ragged for quite a while. The church culture generally stabilized about the mid-1900s, about the time I was born, actually. The beliefs included basic Christian theology up to a point, However, some distinctly uncommon doctrines or teachings provided much of the cultural identity for our church. Saturday or Sabbath worship, kosher food observance, avoiding pagan celebrations like was mentioned, but also a strong emphasis on the apocalyptic, prophetic teachings, and more. There was usually general agreement around these distinctions, but there were always discussions about them regarding their priority and the degree of observance. For most people in the church, each doctrine was a matter of salvation 
and sanctification. Or in other words, being saved and staying saved. Therefore, it was a life or death belief every time. Discussions could get very serious, very intense. Some would agree to disagree and continue to effectively do church together, but many others were constantly agitating to persuade any who would listen to their particular beliefs. This sometimes resulted in relational tensions that could involve whole families or cliques of people. However, during my teen years, many, if not most, sincerely believed that ours was the only true church, and you don't want to be too quick to leave it. Growing up in this church environment, with Dad being a pastor, was a balancing act for as long as I can remember. On the one hand, this was my family, extended family and good friends, and I wanted to buy into the belief system completely. I was immersed in the teachings, and I could teach them. No matter what the contortions and manipulations of Scripture, this was truth, and needed to be learned, lived, and taught. So, my personal quest became scriptural knowledge and clarity of teaching it. But living it out would always be a difficult issue. Being born with a bit of a maverick nature, there were things that were never settled within me. As a preteen, the emphasis on looking and acting the part of a PK, or preacher's kid, wasn't appealing at all. I really hated it. The politically correct code at each church location varied, but it was obviously important. So, that code was a source of people's pride if it was followed, or disdain if it wasn't. I resisted much of it on the inside, and too often for comfort, also on the outside. This began to carry over into doctrinal issues. As I got older, my questions of scriptural interpretation and application became increasingly frequent and strong. Being invited, encouraged, and even pushed into various leadership positions, it was necessary to follow, develop, and present the church in a positive way. However, in my young adult years, this was conflicting with my growing dissatisfaction with the church culture and teachings. It appeared to me that too often, Questions that seemed to threaten the status quo in almost any area were too easily dismissed by those in church leadership. Eventually, after 30-plus years of serious church involvement, I reluctantly yet firmly knew that I was no longer a proper fit. By this time, allowing myself more input from Christians in other churches and other Christian organizations, I knew there was more to Christianity than was being experienced in my church bubble and greater understanding wasn't going to be facilitated by continuing involvement in the church of my birth. So, looking back on the last 25 plus years away from my original church experience, the journey has been an adventure of personally learning and growing in the expansive freedom that comes through knowing Jesus more and experiencing a love relationship with him. Looking back, it is sometimes tempting to think, if I had only known then what I know now, but life is a journey. We are on our own paths. What has become apparent is that there are also very many others whose church experience is unfortunately similar to mine. If you are one of them, then this podcast, Grace Intersect, is for you. Thank you for listening today. 
My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect podcast. Please know your thoughts and or questions are welcome. Comments may be made at graceintersect.com website or by emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.